This week on the show, we cover TrueNAS becoming a multi-OS. We have an encrypted ZFS on NetBSD pool for you. FreeBSD's new code of conduct is what we talk about a bit. Gaming on OpenBSD is a topic, as well as digging in a little deeper. Hammer 2 and PRDX Snapshots is also on the list and other things in this week's episode of BSD Now. ESP Now, episode 356, Dig In Deeper, recorded on the 24th of June 2020. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap, the online backup for the truly paranoid. Hi, I'm your host, Benedict Koschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to this week's episode. We're glad that you tuned in today, whether it's the actual week or a bit later, a couple of people are catching up. Uh, that's no problem. We have the freshest news for you. And it starts with TrueNAS is multi-operating system or multi-OS. And that is over on the iX Systems blog where they write, Welcome to the post-OS era. There was a time in history where all that mattered was an operating system, operating system, OS, and the hardware it ran on, the pre-software era, unquote, if you will. The hardware that dictated the operating system you used. Once software applications became prominent, your hardware's operating system determined the applications you could run. Application vendors were forced to juggle the burden of potentially between operating system platforms, or no, potentially portability, of course. Okay, so I'll restart over. Application vendors were forced to juggle the burden of portability between operating system platforms, choosing carefully to operating systems they'd developed their software to. Then there were the great operating system wars of the 1990s, replete with the rampant competition, licensing battles, and nasty lawsuits, which more or less gave birth to the open source operating system era. The advent of the hypervisors simultaneously gave way to the virtual era, which set us on a path of agnosticism towards the operating system. Instead of choosing from the applications available for your chosen operating system, you could simply install another OS on the same hardware for your chosen application. The operating system became nothing but a necessary cog in the stack. So TrueNAS here, TrueNAS Open Storage enables this post-OS era with support for storage clients of all Unix flavors. Linux, FreeBSD, Windows, macOS, VMware, Citrix, and many others. Containerization has carried that mentally even further. An operating system, like the hardware that runs on it, is now just part of the infrastructure. And so the question comes, so which operating system should TrueNAS use? There have been some comments in the press about their plans, so we thought it best to share a fuller picture. So here you can see that there is a kind of a rename from TrueNAS Core to TrueNAS Scale. And that's the news here. Most are aware by now that we have decided to unify FreeNAS and TrueNAS into a single software image and brand, TrueNAS Open Storage. With the release of version 2.0 that was previously called FreeNAS will now be TrueNAS Core. What was formerly TrueNAS will now be TrueNAS Enterprise. Both of these TrueNAS editions use FreeBSD 12.0 as the base operating system and it has been performing very well. Future development for these editions will continue on FreeBSD. And they talk a little bit more about what the multi-OS part of that means and the containerization in that mix. There's a little section down further down below where they write about how did they enable multi-OS. Uh, starting with FreeNAS 11.1, the code base for a couple of years ago 
They have invested in the multi-OS transition with a few key initiatives. One being the middleware was updated to be OS independent and have clean REST and WebSockets APIs, as well as web user interface was modernized using Angular and the new APIs. It's also operating system independent, as well as collaboration with open source component projects like Samba and Arclone to ensure we could have portability of key components. They minimize the use. Yeah, you know, the, the middleware is mostly written in Python and so on, so it's fairly easy to make it work on more than one operating system. Oh, yes. Especially if you set it with that as a goal from the beginning, it makes it easier to abstract it. You know, if you've depended on uh, deep integration with the OS for a long time, it can be a little bit more work. But oh yes, yeah. But the the fruits of that labor have uh, turned into this, and this is the result. And you can read, of course, more about this on the iX Systems uh, website. Then next up, we have encrypted ZFS for you on NetBSD 9.0 for a free BSD guide. Yeah, uh, so this is a post over on Ruben's blog, Ruben Nerd. Uh, he said, I had one of my other HP microservers brought back from the office last week to help with this working from home uh, world that we're now living in. I was going to wipe an old version of Debian off of it and install FreeBSD to mirror my other machine before thinking, well, NetBSD 9 just came out and it has ZFS support. What about doing that? For people on Twitter asking why I'd want to, I discussed where I used NetBSD in the past, uh, back in December, along with uh, some wallpaper that I made that's become a kind of a running joke on his website. Uh, some people were polite when asking, others less so. But uh, I digress. This is uh, one line from the NetBSD 9 release notes. It says that they've updated their version of ZFS, and this is the first version of NetBSD with ZFS that's considered usable for daily use. So he said, this is huge. ZFS is the only file system I trust with data I care about. So I have um, that confidence along with the familiar and flexible tool chain on NetBSD is just too cool. So I had to give it a try. However, when I'm using it on FreeBSD, I've been using the Geli full disk encryption to provide encrypted devices to build my Zoopool out of. I don't have any experience with doing this on NetBSD, but having read their excellent documentation, I learned about CGD or the cryptographic device driver and its interfaces. So my microserver has two four gigabyte or sorry, four terabyte SATA drives that show up as WD0 and WD1. Uh, so the first step was to create CGD configurations for them. And so you can see he set them up uh, with keys under ETC CGD and uh, encrypted them with AES XTS 256-bit. And then he configured the passwords for them and got them up and going, and then I mounted them and remounted them, make sure it all works. And now he says, avoid making puns about jumping into pools. <laughs> uh, so now that he has CGD0 and CGD1 that are the equivalent of, you know, ADA0.ELI and ADA1.ELI on FreeBSD, he could then create a pool, which he named Tank, uh, mirroring those two devices together. And sure enough, there it is, an encrypted set of S pool running on top of NetBSD. The next step was to research if I can or should do ZFS send receive between the FreeBSD ZFS boxes and NetBSD? And the answer is yes. Uh, the ZFS replication is designed to be fully forwards and backwards compatible. So even if you are sending from the very newest FreeBSD, a ZFS send, uh, provided you don't enable any extra features with extra flags, will be fully receivable on an old FreeBSD 8 machine or an image you create on that FreeBSD 8 machine will be receivable on your FreeBSD 13 machine. Part of the point of ZFS send receive is to enable this 
uh, transition. Now, when you do a send and receive, that's why you have to specify some extra flags if you want to enable newer features, like the uh, lowercase c flag to enable compression, so that blocks that are compressed will stay compressed during send receive. That presupposes the other side is going to be able to understand that. Uh, and since ZFS replication is a one-way protocol, unidirectional, we don't ever talk to the other side to find out what features it supports. So it depends on you doing that or having a script that will do it for you. Yeah, that's important to know, but it's possible to make them uh, interoperable between different operating systems. And yeah, that get make uh, the whole thing a whole interesting thing. If you are like having a cold backup system on one operating system and the other one, your main one being the primary one sending those uh, snapshots over. Uh, he does put a disclaimer that, you know, you might want to partition these disks if you're attending to do other things with them or, or use them for different things. Um, he's not covering booting from the encrypted uh, drives on this particular one, but that makes sense, in the, especially in the case of NetBSD. But he helps kind of translate. So if you're used to the FreeBSD instructions, how to make those make sense on NetBSD. Oh, yeah. And it's nice that NetBSD got to release it with FreeBSD 9 or NetBSD 9, sorry. Uh, and so that people can try it out and um, report anything they could find or just how they like it. All right, it's time for the news roundup this week. We have the FreeBSD new code of conduct for you in case you haven't seen it. And we have the announcement email for you, which reads like this. Active FreeBSD developers were invited to complete two surveys related to our code of conduct. That was uh, internal to the project. The first survey conducted in 2018 told us that first, 94% of developers believe respectful communication in the project is important. 1% disagreed. Second, 89% believe FreeBSD should be welcoming to people of all backgrounds. 2% disagreed. Third, 73% say toxic people should be removed from the project regardless of their technical contributions. 9% disagreed. And fourth, 35% were dissatisfied with the code of conduct adopted in 2018, 34% were neutral, and 30% were satisfied. Uh, these results indicated that there was sufficient dissatisfaction with the current code of conduct to warrant investigation. After reviewing other open source codes of conduct, the FreeBSD core team investigated adopting either an LLVM-derived or a Go-derived code of conduct. And a second survey was held at the start of June and had only one question. Which code of conduct should FreeBSD adopt? An LLVM-derived code of conduct or a Go-derived code of conduct? Or third option, retain the current code of conduct. And the results were that 4% favored the keeping of the current code of conduct, 33% favored the Go-derived code of conduct, and 63%, uh, and the winner, was the favorite uh, LLVM-derived code of conduct. Thus, the core team, following the preference of the majority of active FreeBSD developers, adopted the LLVM-derived code of conduct. And of course, we have the links uh, in our show notes for you to review, in case you haven't seen it. Uh, for the gamers among us, the next item might be of interest because there is gaming on OpenBSD uh, over at dataswamp.org and it uh, has these items for us. While no one would expect this, there are huge efforts from a small team to bring more games to, into OpenBSD. In fact, now some commercial games work natively too, thanks to Mono or Java. There are no Wine or Linux emulation layer in OpenBSD, so this is all... Uh, directly running. 
Uh, here's the small list of most well-known games that run on OpenBSD. I guess some of these might be more or less familiar to you. Northgard, which is real-time strategy. Yeah, and then Death Cell, which is a side-scrolling action game. Uh, Stardew Valley, which is a roguelike farming game. Uh, Slay the Spire, which is a card game. It's also roguelike. Axiom Verge, which is a side-scroller, kind of a Metroidvania kind of thing. Uh, Crosscode, which is a top-view twin-stick shooter. Uh, Terraria, which is a side-scroll action game with crafting. Uh, Ion Fury and Doom 3, which are first-person shooters. Minecraft, which is kind of a sandboxy Minecraft thing. <laughs> and uh, Tales of Ma Ayal, which is a roguelike with lots of things in it, and it's open source uh, and free and so on. They also mentioned that there's some recently made uh, compatible games from the Zactronics developer. Uh, these are ingenious puzzle games requiring uh, some efficiency. These games involve assembly code, pseudocode, and molecules. Uh, they have Opus Magnum, Exapunks, and Molek Synthes. And finally, there's some uh, RPGs. Uh, Elder Scrolls III Morrowind, which is an open MW engine. And then Baldur's Gate 1 and 2 and Planescape Torment, which are GemRB engine based. Uh, there's also a PeerTube channel, which is kind of an open source decentralized YouTube, uh, Twitch type thing. Uh, so there's a PeerTube channel. Uh, where they've started publishing game videos recorded on OpenBSD. And there's also some other videos from people doing uh, that. So check out the OpenBSD gaming channel. Uh, the full list of uh, games that you can get running is in the shopping guide, uh, which they've established. So if you really want to game on OpenBSD, here's a big list of games uh, that are known to work. Oh, yes. And you get the OpenBSD security as an added bonus. Very cool. And now for the namesake of this episode, dig. A little deeper yeah uh, so they say i knew i knew of the existence of the dig command but i didn't exactly know how and when i should use it then uh, just recently i encountered an issue that allowed me to learn and to make use of the tool in brief dig can help us find the ip address and more information associated with a given domain name basically allows you to query the the dns to find out information about a host name i've made a design about the issue i encountered and how i used dig to debug it and the issue and verify the fix. So they say, uh, recently, no one was able to receive emails sent uh, by me from my personal address on their own domain there. Uh, so after a bit of reading, I realized, uh, sorry, uh, so I thought of debugging the problem. I found that my recipient's email clients were simply uh, marking my emails as spam. After reading a bit, I realized that the SPF or sender policy framework record may not have been set properly for my domain. So I fixed the problem. I added uh, an SPF record for my domain. I got to know what the dig command can help to find whether there's records or not uh, for a specific type. I didn't know how to use dig, so I learned uh, to use it in order to do this. Uh, so they show some output from the dig command. Uh, the first one is just doing dig on the root of a domain, and they kind of annotated uh, a screenshot of that explaining what was going on. So you can see the first part uh, is the, the query record. It's what question were you asking? So in this case, it was searching for internet records of type A, which is address, uh, looking for the IPv4 address of the domain. And then we see the answer section where we see the domain, how long the record can be cached for, or the time to live, that is an internet record, it's an address record, and then what the IP address was. And then there's a summary where it tells you how long it took to figure this out, what server gave us the answer, 
uh, how big the message was and that kind of thing. Um, and then you can specify other options if you want to ask a specific server or if you want to look for something different. For example, if you want to look up the name server records uh, or the MX record or the SPF record instead of the default address record. And they also show how if you did that same query again to the same name server, you might actually see that that time to live number is smaller uh, because when your answer is from the cache, you don't get to cache it for that length again, 300 uh, seconds. You can only cache it for as long as uh, the original time on the record. Otherwise, stale records could just run in a loop and, and never fall out of the cache. Mm -hmm. you know, um, now that bind is not included in FreeBSD, um, a lot of these types of queries can be done with the drill utility, which is built in, although some of the uh, more exotic modes uh, like plus trace are not available in drill. Ah, yes. Yeah. But the nice thing is there's nothing like a good problem to learn the Unix command, how it works and blog about it afterwards. So yeah, I guess that's a benefit for everyone. Uh, then next up, we have some news from Dragonfly BSD, Hammer 2 and periodic snapshots. Uh, the first version of Hammer took automatic snapshots set within the config of each file system. Hammer 2 now also takes automatic snapshots via periodic, like most uh, every repeating task on your Dragonfly system. And they have some details, two announcement emails and some uh, implementation notes. So the commit says implement periodic Hammer 2 snapshots, uh, add new periodic scripts and uh, yeah, add them to daily intervals. We so have daily snapshots, but I guess you can also have different intervals. Symlinks, the script also into weekly and monthly intervals. Here we go. Extend default periodic conf with variables to configure that script. Describe new variables in periodic conf and mention the functionality also in Hammer's man page. Hammer 2's man page, more precise. Note the daily variables are used by the script as defaults. So it's possible to set custom cron entries for different periodic invocations of the script to create, for example, hourly snapshots. Oh, excellent. Mm. Always good to have. Uh, the interesting thing they did was um, they, it looks like it won't create new snapshots if the file system is more than 90% full, which I can understand being useful. Um, it would, you know, My first reaction when I was like, I wonder if we should detect when you're using ZFS and automatically create snapshots on FreeBSD, kind of like how we have the periodic for Scrub. Uh, but I was like, well, we're going to run somebody out of space and make them angry. But maybe if we could say, you know, if the file system, as long as we have enough space, we keep creating these snapshots. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Always good to have a little bit left and, but always a nice thing to fall back to in case you need them. And if they're done in the background, you don't have to worry about them. This week's episode of BSE Now was sponsored by our friends at Tarsnap, the only secure online backup you can trust with your data because even paranoids need backups. So if you head over to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow, you can sign up for a pay-as-you-go account. So you just put some money in and start making backups, and you're charged based on the amount of space and bandwidth that you use uh, until you run out of money. So you can never get an unexpected bill, uh, which you know can be really important when dealing with the cloud because it can end up being a lot more expensive than you would think. Yeah, Tarsnap has a number of uh, client applications that you can use it with to uh, make it a bit easier for the BSDs, the Linuxes, the macOS uh, systems out there, as well as Sequin and others. So there's no excuse to not use Tarsnap and make backups properly. And if you know how to use Tar on a command line, the command line for Tarsnap is fairly similar. And so, there is actually no bad excuse or even a good one 
to not use Parsnap. And if you keep your keys, no one else can look at your encrypted data in the cloud. Alrighty, time for the feedback and questions this week. We have received a number of them. Always good to have a bit of backlog for them. But in case uh, we run out again sooner or later, uh, send us more. Everything that you would like to know or that you always uh, struggled with, something that we could maybe help you with, or if you found some interesting pieces of BSD, things that we haven't found yet on the web, then send all of this to feedback at bsdnow.tv and then it will appear in a future episode. The first one this week is Sai with an open SSL relicensing question or at least some input. Uh, reads like the following. Hi, I was wondering if there have been any updates in the last couple of years about the OpenSSL relicensing effort. The last related posting on the OpenSSL website appears to be from 2018 with a link to it. Uh, has the switch to Apache licensing stalled out? I recall this change being a serious concern for the LibreSSL project when originally announced, as it would preclude their importing any OpenSSL changes going forward. So it would be nice to hear about any community plans on how to deal with that situation if it does come to pass. Yeah, uh, I don't know that there has been much of an update there. I think they might have realized it wasn't as feasible as they thought it was. Um, but I do think it's good to be thinking and talking about it uh, because, you know, we've had similar things come up in the past. Uh, you know, if you even think about the BSD license, just over time as we you know, switch from four clauses to three to two, uh, oftentimes that required, uh, you know, there some files still have those extra clauses because we didn't have permission from the, the original authors to change it, uh, especially when there's many original authors or where, you know, it's not necessarily easy to tell every person that actually modified that code and so on. Uh, and so it also brings up the question, you know, some other projects have gone, uh, maybe too far and like Java has this uh, required contributor agreement where you basically have to sign over all rights to the code that you contribute to them so that they can always do whatever they want with the code, uh, which probably not a great thing. Uh, but something like a voluntary uh, contributor agreement, which might allow you to say, automatically assign your copyright uh, to a foundation or something that's backing a set of code so that you know, in the future, uh, if you're not interested in working on OpenSSL anymore, uh, but they want to do something, uh, they might have the ability to do that with your code rather than needing to try to get in touch with you uh, on an email address that you haven't used in 20 years, uh, or, you know, uh, a company email address where the company got acquired or went out of business or whatever. And it just becomes very difficult to, to get in touch with the right people. Or, you know, we're getting to the point where there's open source code that's more than old enough where the people who wrote it have passed away. Uh, and then what do you do with the license there? Yep, it's a problem. It is a, a big question. And uh, I don't know that OpenSSL managed to solve it uh, or what we would do if they did. And also, um, you know, what questions that raises about our own efforts and uh, licenses yeah if someone else has heard anything more about specifics from open ssl about this relicensing thing then uh, you can send that to us and we'll be happy to follow this up uh -huh. and otherwise we'll just wait and see if they announce something that is um a new licensing uh, model or something that's uh something closer that's uh people 
we're looking out for. Okay, so thanks for that question. And next up is Christian, or Christian, as we say in German. Uh, lag, VLANs, and IOCage is the question. Goes like this. Hi, Alan and Benedict. After licensing to your podcast, Wait, no, I'm still in the licensing issue. After listening, of course, after listening to your podcast for a few years and hear your bragging question, um, all the time I decided to send you one. Excellent, someone has listened. Um, I have a Unifier network at home and a FreeBSD server in the basement. It has two NICs, IGB0 and 1. I splitted my network to several VLANs. Okay. I would like to assign the IOKH jails to different VLANs in my network and group the NICs with lag. I'm struggling to get it working. I break my network access several times this way while trying to get the lag working. Uh, not so good. And I can't find any good information on how to assign the IOKH jails to my VLAN. Do you have any advice for me? I don't know that much about IOKH specifically. Uh, so yeah, you can create a lag of the two NICs and then on top of that, create multiple VLAN interfaces that will you know, apply and, and filter based on the VLAN tag. Um, and then... For regular jails, you would just assign the IP to the right VLAN interface and, and give that IP to the jail and it will work. Or for VNet style jails, you would have to bridge the ePair from the IOCage to that specific VLAN interface. I don't know what IOCage command you would use to specify a different parent interface for different uh, jails, um, but I assume it can do something like that. The if config output of your system when you were trying to do it and it maybe didn't work, uh, be useful to, to try to see what's, which part is missing or whatever. But it also depends what type of jails you're making, whether they're regular jails or VNet jails. Yeah, it doesn't say, but I think that should be possible for both. If someone has like a how-to written for that and it's online and we haven't found it yet, either you've hidden it very well or uh, you should send it to us <laughs> to make that easier. Uh, and then we can share that and uh, more people might be interested in this kind of setup because it's not unreasonable to do. Definitely a good practice. Okay, uh, hopefully that will help you a little bit, Christian. And next is Brad with an SMR question. Mm -hmm. And Brad writes, Hi, JT, Alan and Benedict. I like that JT comes first in this one. So he's also a big part of this show. Um, so, hi JT, Alan and Benedict. Ever since the news came out that Western Digital has come clean about, uh, I have been a bit concerned. I have a free NAS with th six 3 terabyte drives and I have decided to start growing the pool by the ZFS online-e method. Most, four of them, of my current drives are Western Digital Reds and I was planning on replacing them with six terabyte Western Digital Reds. However, according to what I read, uh, Western Digital 2 to 6 terabyte drives are likely SMR. Am I going to run into problems if I buy 6 terabyte drives or should I get 8 terabytes or larger drives? Uh, is there another brand that is better? Is it a Tempest in a teapot? I appreciate any advice you guys may have. Uh, so, is it a Tempest in a teapot? Not really. Uh, SMR and ZFS are not going to get along very well. Um, it won't not work. It might just be really, really slow to the point of not being very usable. Um, the biggest problem with this whole thing is the fact that, you know, you can't go out and buy a six terabyte drive and know for sure if it's going to be one type or the other, if it's a Western Digital. If you buy a Seagate Iron Wolf, specifically their NAS, uh, brand of drive, is guaranteed not to have SMR. They only do SMR sometimes on the desktop drives, but the NAS drives 
like as they're meant to be used in NASes and RAID arrays and ZFS, uh, do not have SMR. Yes, if only the drive manufacturers would just clearly label which ones are SMR and which ones aren't, uh, we wouldn't have this problem. But of course, they want to sell hard drives, uh, not have no one buy SMR ever. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so they're doing these cheeky things. Um, the worst part is you could buy a six terabyte drive and there's a chance it's not SMR because it's older stock or just not a model where uh, they were doing that. But there's a chance that it will be and that's very annoying. So for now, I'd recommend the Seagate Ironwolves because they're guaranteed not to be. It's the easiest way to have the peace of mind and just buy whatever size makes sense for you. As far as hard drive size nowadays, I mostly would look at price per terabyte and find you know the spot where you're not paying a premium just because it's a larger drive. But then again, it also depends how much space you need and how many slots you have. You know, if three terabytes drives are on sale and you have enough room to put a dozen of them in a machine, then it can be cheaper than six terabyte drives. But if you only have six slots, then maybe six or eight terabyte makes more sense. Yeah, it's it's one of these things where you are like, ah, this uh, pool that I have, this should run forever and ever and ever. And I just switch disks around and it grows over the years. But if the disks aren't, uh, working too well or have some issues with ZFS, then uh, that could be a problem. Of course, you can always migrate away from that to a new pool or a new ZFS-based system, but there is actually no alternatives uh, to like physical disks in that capacity. So yeah, it's a problem. Uh, are the open ZFS folks kind of addressing that somehow or planning to? Do you know anything about um, this? There's not much you can do, sadly. Yeah, you know when the disks. So the way SMR works is it's divided up into zones, which are typically right now about two hundred and fifty-six megabytes. And you basically those zones are append only. Mm, the shingles. Yeah. You can only add new data to the end. On the drive manage, which is the most common type of SMR, the drive will take care of you right to the middle of that block. If you try to, if you violate the append only rule, it has to read all two fifty-six megabytes in the memory, modify the part you changed and then write it all out again mm. and obviously writing out 250 reading and writing 256 megabytes every time you want to change 4k is not ideal so uh ars technica did some tests and found that it was you know in traditional rate it's not that bad because when you do a resilver it's sequential it just starts at the beginning of the drive and does all the bytes in order so mm. you're always appending basically but a zfs scrub uh, or resilver is done in the object order of ZFS, which so it means seeking around in the hard drive. Even with the newer code that makes it more sequential, it's not literally sequential from the beginning of the drive. It just means that the scrubs and resilvers you do are generally on the order of hundreds of megabytes instead of a couple of kilobytes. But it's not going to do the whole hard drive in order because it needs to read the object tree in ZFS to get the checksums to make sure the data is correct. Solving this for ZFS is a much bigger problem. I think there was some work in the past uh, on um, from SpectraLogic, uh, but I don't know the status of that. Okay, so if something comes up or some potential solution uh, or the drive manufacturers see the light of day, which is doubtful, um, we'll keep you posted and uh, report what the best way to approach this. And that pretty much wraps up this episode for this week. Uh, thank you for listening and hopefully you tune in next time again next week.